We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, and I want to read this passage in its entirety to get us started. Again, we're not talking precisely about Christmas yet today, but as I said a moment ago, we're talking about the reason for Christmas, which is Jesus came to to save and to redeem, and that's what's going on here in the book of Acts. So I'm going to begin reading this morning in Acts 14, verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 20. Follow along in your Bible. This is what the Word of God says. It says, In Iconium, they, this would be Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they, Paul and Barnabas, became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he, the lame man, leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and they have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you, so that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But when the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. If there's one word that I could use or would use to describe Paul and Barnabas' approach to ministry here in these middle chapters of Acts, the word that I would choose would be the word perseverance. The word I'd use to describe the nature of their ministry at this point in the book of Acts is a ministry defined by perseverance. Now, the dictionary defines perseverance as continuing to do something or trying to do something even though it is difficult. I boiled it down and put it this way because I can remember a simpler definition. I would say that the definition of perseverance means to press on through the tough stuff. To persevere in life, in any situation in life, in any circumstance you may be facing, it means to press on through the tough stuff. And again, that's the word I would use to describe Paul and Barnabas in ministry here because of the things that we see happening to them and the way they continue pressing on. If you were here last Sunday, you may remember 
At the end of Acts chapter 13, they were literally run out of town of Pisidian Antioch under the threat, if not the actual experience, of physical violence. The threat of persecution, physical persecution was there. It doesn't say they were, but it sure seems like they may have been abused in some way. And, and here this morning, if you were listening, as we just read through the beginning of Acts 14, we see that here in these next couple of cities, they met the same and, in fact, worse. In fact, this is the worst persecution that Paul, the apostle, has experienced yet. And yet the Bible tells us Paul and Barnabas just kept going. They kept pressing on through the tough stuff, preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ, pleading with anyone and everyone they met to put their faith in him for salvation. And if you ask me, that's the definition of perseverance. People are literally beating you up, knocking you down, trying to stop you, threatening you in all sorts of ways, and you say, yeah, we hear what you're saying, and we see what you're doing. Sorry, we're going to keep talking. We will persevere in presenting the gospel. And as I've thought about it, and, and, and maybe you can come up with more, I, I, I kind of realized as I was sort of thinking about this idea, this theme of perseverance this week, it dawned on me that there are really only two basic reasons anyone perseveres through anything in life. That anyone perseveres, presses on through the tough stuff in any time, in any way, and I think those two reasons are this. Number one, you have no other choice. (laughs) You press on, you persevere, because you have no other choice. Like the pilot I heard of uh, not long ago, true story of a small commuter plane. It was flying a few years back between Portland, Maine, across sort of the inlet of the Atlantic Ocean down to Boston, Massachusetts. When suddenly, early on in that that flight, that small commuter plane, the pilot heard a strange noise in the back of of the plane, something he knew shouldn't be be happening. So he went back, he handed over the controls to his co-pilot, went back to investigate. Upon getting to the back of the plane to figure out what this noise was that he wasn't supposed to be hearing, the plane hit an air pocket as they were flying over the ocean. He was thrown to the floor, upon which he immediately discovered what the noise was. The back door wasn't latched, and it fell open, and he was sucked out of the plane. Now, immediately, his co-pilot knew something's wrong. The light goes on, the door is open, somehow word, something gets back to him that the pilot was sucked out of the plane when he fell and hit this rear door. It's wide open, and so, of course, he does what a co-pilot should do. He radios the nearest airport. We need an emergency landing. We need medical assistance right away, and you need to initiate a search over the ocean where we've just been flying because the pilot is apparently no longer with us. You get started, you look, and you find him. And after the plane landed, they found him. Pilot, his name was Henry Dempsey, but he wasn't in the water, and he wasn't dead, he wasn't on the land. He was holding on to the ladder on the back of the plane. (laughs) On the way out, he managed to grab it, and he held on for 10 minutes. At 200 miles an hour, from 4,000 feet in the air on down, he managed not to be crushed when the tail section of the plane hit the runway on that emergency landing, and witnesses, rescuers at the scene, testify that while they found him alive and relatively in good health, it did take several minutes to pry his fingers free from the ladder. (laughs) And again, I'm saying simply that to illustrate, sometimes you press on because you have no other choice. You press on through the tough stuff because there is no other option. Second reason we press on, certainly more relevant to what we're going to look at here in God's Word this morning, is other times you persevere. You press on in doing whatever it is you're doing because you are convinced, maybe right or wrong, but you're convinced that what you have or what you know cannot be kept a secret. That it must be expressed. That it must be spelled out. That it must be delivered to others, which I think you will agree is Paul and Barnabas' story here. They press on 
They persevere because they had a, a story to tell. And we know by now well what that story is if we've been here. They had a story, a message. It's this, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That baby who was born, Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose from the dead three days later to save us. And if you will believe him, you will. Anyone and everyone who believes can be saved. And their attitude was, whatever they do to us, whatever they say to us, whatever they threaten us with, whatever, however much we suffer, we will press on with that message. And I would suggest to you this morning, as we dig into the text and we begin walking through it just for the next few minutes together, that their model of perseverance is a fantastic one for us to follow. But this is an example that I can learn from, and it's one that you can as well as followers of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, what this passage also shows, if in a general sense, they are giving us a model to follow, in a specific sense, I believe there are three things in their story, within their model of perseverance, that if we are choosing to persevere, if we are serious about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing it with others, making sure they, they understand it and are given the opportunity to believe it, there are three things we can expect. Three things we can expect as followers of Christ if we are going to spread and persevere in spreading this incredible gospel message. They are as follows, number one. We can, and this should come as no great surprise if you've been here the last several weeks, we can expect in verses one through seven opposition to our witness. If you're going to press on in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, expect to be opposed. Because remember, again, if you look at the text, the reason Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 1, that they came to Iconium and entered the synagogue. Now, the reason they did that is because, as we saw last Sunday, they'd been driven out of the last town they were in, Pisidian Antioch. They left because they couldn't, couldn't stay there, couldn't remain there anymore. Again, under the threat, if not the actual experience of physical violence. And while verse 1 of chapter 14 says that in Iconium they experienced a a significant measure of immediate success, if we can use that word. It says they entered the synagogue, spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But have you note that verse 2 also says they also met immediate opposition because the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Immediate success, immediate opposition. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? Pack up and move on? I don't think so. Look at verse 3. It says, therefore, almost because they knew it was coming, it seems to, Luke seems to be saying, because they knew this is the way it was going to go, what did they do? They spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. And if you were to continue reading, we won't look at verses four through six again specifically, but if you continue reading what you find in the next three verses, that only, the fact that they stayed on and pressed on and kept preaching, only polarized people all the more. It took those who believed and made them more convinced, and it took those who disbelieved and made them more opposed, and that's just the way it was going to be. As they continued to preach in Iconium, and, and as I suggested to you, as I said to you last Sunday, we need to understand as believers, that's normal. That's not an exception. That's not just the way it used to be. That is normal in the Christian life. But you don't have to take my word for it. That's not my opinion. I'll send you to a higher source on this one. I'll send you to Jesus. Matthew chapter 10. If you've got your Bible, turn there real quick with me. Matthew chapter 10. 
Because in Matthew 10, Jesus is talking, speaking to his disciples, whoever else may have been listening. And this is what little baby Jesus, who grew up to be the the Savior, had to say about life in this world if you're going to follow him. He said, Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be, look at this, the members of his household. And you object, and so do I, sort of deep down. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was all about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I thought it was redemption and and grace and mercy and and forgiveness and love and joy and and all that other stuff. And here I find Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. What gives? Well, here's sort of the way I spell it out. Yeah, to those who believe this is a message of peace on earth and goodwill to men. It is redemption and grace and mercy and forgiveness and all those other things. That's the good news of the gospel, but never forget what it takes to get there. The whole message of the gospel is that before you can receive and believe the good news, you got to get yourself through and come to grips with the bad news. And here's the bad news of the gospel, this is where it begins. Number one, you're a sinner. (laughs) So am I. Every person who's ever been born, man, woman, or child, is a sinner. We have a problem. It separates us from God. It, It makes us unacceptable to him in our natural human condition. It's not just that God won't accept me, it's that he can't accept me. I have a problem. Furthermore, not only do you and I have a problem, this is where the gospel begins, there's only one answer to it. There are not many paths up Sunshine Mountain. There's one answer. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. You believe him, and you will be saved. Jesus himself said, many of you know the verse, I am the way, the truth, the life, and you don't get to the Father unless you go through me. And in case you hadn't noticed, people don't like absolutes. No one wants a finger, the finger of Scripture, the finger of the gospel, being pointed at them saying, you have a problem and there's only one answer. You don't get to make up what you're going to do with it. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to be told we're in that condition. And and that's why, bottom line, wherever Paul and Barnabas went, they encountered opposition to their witness because people don't like to be told this stuff. At one point, you didn't either. That's just the way the gospel works. And yet, what did, what did Paul and Barnabas do? Well, we've seen it already. They just kept talking. They just kept proclaiming the gospel. And note that even here in Iconium, they're only there for the span of seven verses. They were once again run out of town there. They'd come from Pisidian Antioch, where they had been run out of town. They come to Antioch, or Iconium, excuse me, they get... Seven verses, and, and verses 6 and 7 say that, yeah, they had to flee there too because the message wasn't well received. But note that when they left, they didn't go run and hide. They didn't say, well, it was strike one in, in Pisidian Antioch, and it's, and it's strike two now in Iconium, and, and maybe we better just call it a day and, and, and pack it up. It's not what it says. Look at verses 6 and 7 again in your Bible. It says, when they became aware of what was to be done to them, there was an attempt to mistreat and to stone them. They fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lyconia was a region, Lystra and Derby were cities in it, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. 
They, what's our word? Persevered in the face of great hostility, in the face of deep opposition. Why? Because they knew what they had couldn't remain a secret. That though some would reject it, everyone needed it. And that it was their God-assigned duty to share it. So what can we learn from their example? Perseverance is the way to go, but understand the reason we need perseverance is because, number one, there will be opposition to the witness. It will not be freely, gladly received by all who hear it. Not only that, their story says there's a second thing we can expect as followers of Christ. If we are going to persevere, if we are serious and willing about sharing this gospel message, and that is that we can expect, in addition to opposition to our witness, number two, confusion over our message. We can expect that the message will be at times... Sometimes mildly, sometimes deeply misunderstood. Which is clearly what happened at their next stop in Lystra. Because if you pick it up in verse 8, and I'm not going to read verses 8 through 10, but, but if you were following along when we looked there a few minutes ago, you saw that what Paul did when he came to this next town, as, as he did, as, as he and, and others had, other apostles had done before, he healed a lame man. He saw a guy who hadn't been able to walk, was born in some sort of, with some sort of physical deformity or issue, had never walked or stood in his entire life, and as a sign to authenticate the reality of the gospel in a place where the name of Jesus had never been heard before, Paul healed him. Sort of the way of saying, see, there's something to this message we are preaching. And that was a wonderful thing, obviously, for Paul to do. But what those verses, the next several verses, beginning in verse 11, tell us, is that the local crowd clearly misunderstood what Paul was trying to do and why he had come. Because it says that they immediately, somewhat chaotically, in my view almost borderline comically, began to revere Paul and Barnabas as as ancient Greek gods who'd come back down in human form. They began to look and say, "Uh, Barnabas, this guy, we think he's Zeus, you know, the great, sort of the supreme god of the Greek pantheon. And we think Paul, because he talks a lot, he's Hermes. Apparently Hermes was the spokesman for the the ancient sort of pantheon of of Greek gods. And and so they they take what happens here that is meant to point people to Jesus Christ in an entirely different direction that that to us makes no sense. Why do they begin calling him Zeus and Hermes and want to do all the things that it says they would do here? Well, there was a reason for it. There was a reason, at least in their minds, that made sense because, and I want to walk you through this because it's relevant still today. The reason they did that is because in this town of Lystra, there was a local legend. It had been around for hundreds, if not maybe a thousand, I don't know how long, many hundreds of years. And that local legend, which apparently the locals deeply believed, was that Zeus and Hermes had come by once before. That many years before any of them were born, Zeus and Hermes, these ancient Greek gods, these deities, had visited their village. They had come dressed as sort of ragged travelers looking for a place to spend the night, as the story went. And it says, the legend says, that in Lystra they visited a thousand homes asking for lodging, asking for something to eat and a place to spend the night, and at a thousand homes they were rejected every time. Until the legend said they came to the home, a a broken down, beat up home of an elderly couple who, though desperately poor, invited them in, treated them the best they possibly could, fed them, gave them a place and, and hospitality and fellowship for the night. And in return, the legend says, in the morning, Zeus and Hermes, because they were so appreciative of what had been done, they transformed that little shack this couple lived in into a magnificent temple and put them in charge of it made them rich and wealthy beyond their wildest imagination. Then they went out and destroyed the other thousand houses that rejected them. That's what these people thought happened in their village hundreds of years before. And while Paul and Barnabas try to set them straight, say, no, 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 you, you misunderstand. That's not what we're here for. Verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. 
They do everything they can to say, no, let's get it back on Christ. We're not about what you think we are. We're about something much better. They do everything they can to point them to the one true God. Verse 18 says that even saying these things, look at your Bible, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. And and in a word, actually two words, it was a scene of mass confusion, a total misunderstanding of the gospel message. And I think I know why. Because we know people are no different today. Circumstances, technology, things of that are different, but, but the human condition is no different. And I think I know why they responded in this way. Because what did it, if you boil down that local legend I just walked, walked you through, what did it say? It says, those who showed hospitality to the gods were enriched beyond their wildest imagination. And those who, who, who showed no hospitality, who were ignorant to this visit from the gods, lost everything. And they thought, hey, this is part two. We're going to get on the right side of the equation this time. We like the idea of being rich. We like the idea of being powerful. We like the idea of gods giving us everything we can possibly imagine. They didn't want to make the mistake their ancestors had made. So they thought, if there's a chance these guys are Zeus and Hermes, we better be on the right side of what they're up to. And I thought, isn't that human nature? Isn't that what most people do want from God, whatever they conceive him to be, whether it's the Christian God or another? What most people genuinely, and again, many of us were at this point, at one point in our lives, until the gospel of Jesus Christ set us straight. The idea is God is there for my benefit, to fix my problems, to solve my issues, and to give me the stuff that I want. And that's what they're thinking here. They're not thinking about a, a relationship with a holy living God whose plans are far beyond, above anything we can ever think of. They're thinking we want stuff. And am I mistaken or are people still <laughs> have that same notion, that issue today? That if I follow Jesus, he'll solve all my problems and he'll make me rich and give me things. And, and God's just sort of this celestial vending machine and I pop in my prayer and he gives me what I want. I'm saying too often, the gospel, the gospel itself is viewed as a means to get what I want from God. When you know what the real message of the gospel is? God says, I sent Jesus to give you what you need. Which is salvation and redemption and forgiveness. The promise of eternal life that far outweighs the very best day we could ever dream of having here. So what am I saying? I'm saying expect confusion over the message. Expect opposition to the witness. Expect confusion over the message. And you know what that means? It means as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to know this message well enough that when it gets mixed up and when it gets turned inside out and upside down, we can straighten it out. Because we know this is all it is. At this point, you could probably say it with me. I won't make you do it this week. I will next time. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe this, and you will be saved. End of story. That's the message. We need to be able to proclaim that and, and express that and persevere in doing so. Now, is that hard sometimes? Absolutely. Not always, but often it is hard. That's why we need to see the third thing this story tells us. A lot of bad news so far. Time for good news. Because there's one more thing we can expect as followers of Jesus Christ. Something that can help us persevere even when the witness is opposed and even when the message is confused. And it's this, according to verses 19 and 20, we can expect as believers, we can count on grace for every situation. There's a promise of grace for every situation. 
Because while it doesn't appear so at first, and I want you to look at those last two verses again for a moment with me. There's actually a striking contrast sort of embedded in, in verses 19 and 20. Because in verse 19, Paul faces easily his, his severest, most physically painful persecution yet. It says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Those are the last two cities he'd been to before Lystra. These are people, it wasn't enough just to to run Paul and Barnabas out of town. They wanted to hunt them down as well. Antioch's over 100 miles away and and had to travel by foot. They're like, we're so irritated with what he did here. We're going to find him. We're going to hunt him down. And so these Jews, these leaders who opposed him from Antioch and Iconium, came to Lystra, won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. The only reason they stopped throwing stones is they thought they had finished the job. And yet, whether it was a miracle or not, what's the first half of verse 20 say? That while the disciples stood around him, we would assume weeping, grieving. Paul got up and entered the city. I call that perseverance. They just ran me out. They just stole me literally to within an inch of my life. And I'm going to go back into town where they just ran me out. Where they just opposed my witness and confused my message. I call that perseverance in, in the face of great opposition and hostility. But I would also suggest, and it's very subtle, but I think it's there, that there is perseverance, a different kind of perseverance evidenced in the rest of verse 20, where it says this. It says, after being stoned, he got up and went back into the city, and then it says at the end of verse 20, the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby, next town down the road. And the reason I think there's something to that is because Derby, it's mentioned here, the next city they went to, and it's mentioned about two, maybe three other times in the book of Acts. But the interesting thing about Derby is we're told nothing about Paul and Barnabas' ministry there. We aren't told how long or short they stayed. We aren't told whether they were well-received or opposed. We aren't given any details like we are in the cities they've been to so far. Uh, We're only told, if we're willing to peek ahead just a little bit to verse 21, this is all we're told about their ministry in Derby. It said, after they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they moved on. That's it. We're not told anything else. We don't know why that is. We don't want to read things into the story that aren't there. But again, I would suggest that's a sign of perseverance too. It's a very different kind of perseverance, of pressing on for the sake of the gospel for those who still need to hear it. Because while sometimes our witness puts us in extreme situations, maybe you've been in a spot. I doubt you've been stoned for your faith in Jesus Christ, but maybe you've been opposed. Maybe you've been confused. Maybe you've been kicked out of the house for your faith. in. I mean, some of you have experienced that sort of severe persecution, and you've got to persevere at great cost. But for most of us, what does faithfulness, perseverance to the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing it with others demand? means faithfulness through a long succession of ordinary days. Being faithful right where God has placed me. When there's no great mission to fulfill, there's no great goal to accomplish, when no one's looking and cheering me on, there's no aisle to walk, that by doing so I'm saying to the world, I'm going to go change it for Jesus Christ and everybody's going to know my name when I'm done. That's not the way it works most of the time. Most of the perseverance in sharing the gospel happens right where he's placed us, right where he has us. And I say to you that grace is just as necessary on those days too. Because that's where most of us live, isn't it? That's where most of us are. 
And the message here is God provides grace for both situations. And if we'll look to him, if we will, if you go back up to three, verse 3, as Paul and Barnabas did, if we will, rely on him. And once again, you don't have to take my word for it. This isn't a conclusion I've drawn just out of my own mind, so I have something to say to you about these verses. No, this is exactly what a few years later the Apostle Paul himself said. When, when the need for God's grace and to persevere by God's grace had been repeated both in ordinary and extreme situations many, many, many times over. As he continued on in ministry, I want you to listen. You don't need to turn there, but to Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13, where this is Paul's testimony. You may not know this, he wrote it from prison, where he'd been jailed for his faith. This is what Paul said. Here's what I've learned. He said, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I know you know this verse, and I can do all things because I'm gritty and determined and tough. No, I can do all things because Christ gives me strength. Because in the extreme and in the ordinary, God possesses and willingly gives grace for every situation. And for that reason, we can persevere. You know, I don't know how many of you are familiar. Some of you may be very familiar with this story. Some of you may never have heard of it before. But of the ongoing plight, it's happening right now of, of a man by the name of Pastor Saeed Abedini. Some of you may, as I said, be familiar with that name. Pastor Saeed is an, an Iranian-born American citizen. Born in Iran, came to America, married, has a couple of small children, I had a ministry going in Idaho when a few years back he went back to his homeland of Iran to, to spread the gospel of Christ. And in the process of doing so, he was arrested. And for the last three years, he's been in prison in Iran for his faith. He is in every way a modern-day Apostle Paul. And, and I've been aware of his story, but I've gotten into it a little bit more, dug into it more deeply lately. And, and he's been there for a while now. His wife and his family are here in the States waiting, praying, Thousands of people around the country and the world are praying for his release. Hasn't happened yet. But just this week, he managed to get a, a Christmas letter out to his family. I don't know how he got it out, but it's, it's out and it's been published. And when I came across it, I thought, you know, I, I just I want to share this with you guys. So if, just for the last couple of minutes before we close and pray, I want to read you Pastor Saeed's Christmas letter. Again, I, just, you're going to hear this and you're going to think Paul could have written this. At least that's how I feel. Because it's a, it's a lesson, a, a, a very real lesson in perseverance. So listen as I read his letter. It's dated simply Rajai Shah Prison 2014. He begins, Merry Christmas. It says, The days are very cold here. My small space beside the window is without glass, making most nights unbearable to sleep. The treatment by fellow prisoners is also quite cold and at times hostile. Some of my fellow prisoners don't like me because I'm a convert to Christ and a pastor. They look at me with shame as someone who's betrayed his former religion. The guards can't even stand the paper cross that I have made and hung next to me as a sign of my faith and in anticipation of celebrating my Savior's birth. They have threatened me and forced me to remove it. This is the first Christmas I'm completely without my family. All of them are presently outside of the country. These conditions have made this upcoming Christmas season very hard, cold, and shattering for me. It appears that I am alone with no one left beside me. These cold and brittle conditions have made me wonder why God chose the hardest time of year to become flesh. 
and why he came to the earth in the weakest human condition as a baby. Why did God choose the hardest place to be born in cold weather? Why did God choose to be born in a manger in a stable which is cold, filthy, unsanitary, and unpleasant? Why did the birth have to be in such a way that it was not only hard physically but also socially? It must have brought such shame for Mary and her fiancé that she was pregnant before marriage in the religious society of that time. Dear sisters and brothers, the fact of the gospel is that it is not only the story of Jesus, but it is the story of how we are to live and serve like Jesus. Today, we like him should come out of our safe comfort zone in order to proclaim the word of life and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the penalty of sin that he paid on the cross and to proclaim his resurrection. We should be able to tolerate the cold, the difficulties, and the shame in order to serve God. We should be able to enter into the pain of the cold, dark world For then we are able to give the fiery love of Christ to the cold, wintry manger of those who are spiritually dead. It might be necessary to come out of the comfort of our lives and leave the loving embrace of our family to enter into the manger of the lives of others, such as it has been for me for the third consecutive Christmas. It may be that we will be called fools and traitors and face many difficulties, but we should crucify our will and our wishes even more until the world hears and tastes the true meaning of Christmas. Christmas means that God came so that he would enter your hearts today and transform your lives and replace your pain with indescribable joy. Christmas is the manifestation of the radiant brightness of the glory of God in the birth of a child named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas is the day that the heat of the life-giving fire of God's love shone in the dark, cold, wintry, frozen hearts and burst forth in this deadly, wicked world. The same way that the heat from the earth's core melts the hard stones in itself and produces lava, the fiery love of God, Jesus Christ, through the Virgin Mary's womb, came to earth on Christmas to melt the hard heart of sin and wickedness of the world and remove them from our life. In the same process, the work of the Holy Spirit is a fiery rain of God's holiness and mercy that flows into our body, soul, and spirit and brings the light of Christ into us and through us, making this dark, cold, wintry world into radiant, burning brightness. He is turning our world into a world full of peace, joy, and love that is so different than the dark, cold, and wintry world that we used to live in. Hallelujah. So this Christmas, let the lava-like love of Christ Enter into the depth of your heart and make you fiery, ready to pay any cost in order to bring the same lava love to the cold world around you, transforming others with the true message of Christmas. Pastor Saeed Abdini. Hard to think of a more extreme situation for your faith than that. And I share that letter with you for two reasons this morning. First, obviously, pray. Pray for this man. He is your brother and he is my brother. And we're going to go home and we're worried about presents. And I'm not trying to inflict guilt. I'm just saying this is where we are. We've got all this stuff going on and this man is in prison for his faith. This is a modern day Apostle Paul. We need to pray for him and for his family, for his protection and release. But I also share this with you because believe it or not, our, listen, our motive to persevere in serving and sharing Christ is the very same as his. There's only one reason. There is only one enduring reason to continue sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what it is? He told us to. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my 
what? Witnesses in the whole world. And I think you'd agree with me that Jesus is worthy of being obeyed. And that's why the big idea this morning, as we've looked at here, is very simple. It's that this message, not my message, this message, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead, and by believing it, you will be saved. This message must be shared. And he's asked us to share it. Father, I don't know what that means for any one of us in the coming days with the approach of Christmas. Father, with the world and the circles, the family, the relationships, the the places you put us day by day. Father, it also seems to me that that you didn't spell any of that out when, when Jesus told us this is our assignment. He just said, do it wherever we go, wherever we are. Father, we realize that we live in a dark, wintry, frozen, cold world, and it's not a weather problem, it's a sin problem. We also realize that you have shown us the fiery, lava-like love of Jesus Christ that can penetrate even the hardest, stoniest heart. Father, may we leave here not weighed down with burden and guilt, but Father, rather challenged, convicted, maybe even inspired to say, I I will be a witness for Jesus Christ. Not this week, not soon, today. Father, help me with that. There's all sorts of excuses. There's all sorts of reasons. We're always too busy. But people need Christ. And Father, this time of year above all others is a moment when their hearts are just a little bit more open. Father, we pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the name of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed today, this week particularly. Father, all around the world, in every place, in every dark corner, Father, because your word says you desire that all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and and Christ died for all. Father, thank you that you, in your grace and mercy, brought that message to each so many of our hearts here this morning. Father, for the unmoved, unsaved hearts, bring it to them today. Father, not so we can count heads and decisions, but so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ will grow. We ask it in his name. Amen.